So we're going to take a short break from Philippians for Advent. Now, let me just say a quick word about Advent. For the longest time, I always thought that Advent was just another word for Christmas season. Anyone else out there? Advent is just another word for Christmas season. A way to start celebrating Christmas early. If Christmas is the big game, then Advent is the tailgate party. That's how I always viewed Advent. But that's not entirely true. It might help us to know that Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And the word Adventus is used to describe the arrivals of Jesus. And I use that word arrivals, plural, on purpose. Because in the story of redemption, in the story of scriptures, we see two Advents, not just one. We have the first Advent when Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago. And then when He ascended to God's right hand, He assured us that there would be a second Advent when He returns to make all things new. So, we Christians living in 2017 live between the two Advents. And so, Advent has always been about waiting more than celebrating. We place ourselves into the story of redemption and we wait with the Old Testament people of God for Jesus' first arrival, which helps us literally wait for Jesus' second arrival. So Advent is a time of restraint. Advent is a time of reflection. Advent is a time of waiting. I would like it to be a time, therefore, where we as a church focus on prayer. Because a waiting people is a praying people. A waiting people is a praying people. So we will be focusing in the next four weeks on four waiting prayers, four Advent prayers. And they are, how long, O Lord? First, next week, come Lord Jesus, which is a prayer. Week three, I will remember you, O Lord. Finally, week four. I will rejoice. But this morning we began with Psalm 13 with the prayer, the ancient prayer. How long, O Lord? Let's read Psalm 13 together. We'll pray and then we'll dig in. This is God's word. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to think back to the last time you were stuck somewhere with no exit. I think of Sean Dockery, who repairs elevators and therefore rescues people from elevators on a regular basis. When was the last time you felt like you were stuck in an elevator? When was the last time you felt stuck with no exit? My mom is currently stuck in the hospital. Uh, She had a standard knee replacement surgery, but when she woke up from anesthesia, her GI tract didn't. And so she's waiting for that to kick in the gear. And I visited her on Tuesday. She's been in there six days counting. I visited her on Tuesday, and she's trying to keep her spirits high, but the truth is she wants out. She feels stuck. And so I ask you, think back. When was the last time you felt stuck? When were you last stuck? When have you experienced what I call chronological claustrophobia? Chronological claustrophobia is when time, because you're waiting, just feels like it's coming in on you, like the Star Wars trash compactor. And you're just waiting and you feel stuck and you can't get out. And, and time, it's just, it's just like it's crushing you. It's closing in on you. And you can't wait any longer. You're stuck. Think back. Well, you probably don't have to think back, frankly, because many of us, if we're honest, are stuck right now. Maybe not in a literal hospital room or a literal trash compactor on a spaceship but we are stuck we we're stuck in our job we're stuck in this city we're stuck in the stage of life we're stuck with a chronic illness we're stuck in our depression we're stuck with our anxious thoughts about the future we're stuck with our traumatic memories of the past we're stuck question what do we do when we're stuck Friends, Advent is for stuck people. Psalm 13 is for stuck people. Because Psalm 13, as we read, begins with the cry, How long, O Lord? And that cry happens four times in just the first two verses. David is crying out again and again and again and again. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And he says, I have sorrow in my heart. And so I think he models for us what to do when we feel stuck. I think God is pleased to give us Psalm 13 when we feel stuck, wherever you are. So we know what to do in that scary place. This psalm has a three-part movement. 
as a psalm. As you look down at the text, you see those three sections. That's, there's almost a movement or a flow to this ancient psalm. It starts with crying out. It moves to conversation. And then it ends with confidence. And so let's take a look at each in turn. Crying out. This psalm begins with raw, unfiltered emotion. David is crying out. And God wants you to cry out in this same way. God does not want you to keep your mouth shut about your struggles, about your stuckness. Look how David cries out about all of his struggles. His struggles with God, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's crying out about his vertical struggles. David is being brutally honest about his struggles with God. He feels forgotten. He feels like God is distant. And then David, in verse 2, cries out, not just about his vertical struggles, but his internal struggles. What's going on in his soul? He asks God how long he will have to take counsel in his soul. Verse 2. Other translations say, How long must I struggle with anguish? The word for take counsel is sometimes translated rebellion or revolt. And sometimes it feels like our internal life is, and our thoughts are in rebellion, in revolt. There is something going on inside of us that feels like anguish. And he's saying, How long? The latter. Part of verse 2, he says, How long will I have sorrow in my heart? All the day. All day long. He has no sense of relief. He's carrying what Longfellow called secret sorrows which the world knows not. Secret sorrows which the world knows not. David Foster Wallace calls this invisible agony. Invisible agony, friends. And he cries out about it. He cries out, thirdly, about the struggles he's experiencing in his life. So not just his vertical struggles, not just his internal struggles, but his horizontal struggles. His enemies are are being exalted over him. Do you see that? The last part of verse 2. They have the upper hand. There are events happening in David's life that called into question God's justice, his goodness. Remember, David is the anointed one. And so when the enemies have the upper hand, that calls into question the very justice of God. The very idea that God knows what he's doing. There are circumstances going on in your life which causes you to cry out or at least feel the same thing. God, where is your justice? There are things as we turn on the television. There are things that we read about in our history books. There are things happening in our workplaces where we are crying out, God, where is your justice? Are you good? You are being called right now from the suppression of those struggles to the expression of those struggles.
Two words, friends. Cry out. Okay? Cry out. Cry out. Whether it's struggles with God, whether it's internal struggles, whether it's things going on in your life, cry out. Crying is raw. It's vulnerable. I understand why we don't want to do it. The other day, my oldest son, he hit the back of his head on the corner of the car door, which sounds terrible, right? And he cried. He cried out. And instinctively, what did I do as his dad? I I ran to him. I was on the phone with my mom, actually, which is an important call. But I went to him immediately. I said, Mom, I have to hang up. I went to him. My heart broke for him. I was tender for him. What did I not do? I did not rebuke him for getting near the car door. I did not ask him, well, what happened so that it doesn't happen again? I did not explain to him, well, this is why it happened. What did I do? I drew near to him in his confusion, in his pain, in his crying. I did not ask him to stop crying. If that is true of me, a sinner, how much more is it true of our God and Father? He longs for you to cry out. In fact, the cry, how long? If you were to hear it in Hebrew, it sounds like weeping. It's very compatible with weeping, actually. It's this. Adonah. 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 You can weep and say Adonah at the same time. How long? Adonah. How long? And that might be the most articulate prayer that we have ever sent to God's ear. Adonah. Through a heaving chest. Advent is a gift to you if you're struggling, if you're stuck. It's a challenge, though, to suppressors. Those who love to suppress God is challenging you to intentionally cry out this season. Make Advent this year a season where you are crying out. Give God all of your agony. David gives God all his agony. Every angle is hit. Divine agony. Soul agony. Circumstantial agony. Nothing is left out. Total honesty. Think about it. If my sons came home from school and they had a rough day and I asked them, how's your day? How did your day go? And if with a stiff upper lip, they said, fine. That would break me. That would break my heart. If, 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 the, if the remainder of their lives, they did not feel like they could cry out honestly to me, their father. I want them to unload on me for the rest of my life. How much more, God? This Advent, I want us to learn lament. The first two verses here is a lesson in the lost art of lament. Lament, you may ask, what is it? Lament is being brutally honest with God about your struggles and loss, but in the form of a prayer. It is venting with a two-worded prelude. Dear Lord. 
I think lament is hard in America. I think lament is hard in American Christian culture because we don't want to come across ungrateful, do we? And sometimes we feel like, well, if I'm venting to you, God, then I'm ungrateful for all the good things that you have given me. Shouldn't I focus on that, God? That's a hallmark Christianity that I do not find in the scriptures. And think of it this way, as Nicholas Volterstorff encourages us to think of it, who lost his own son. Lament is, at its root, a love song. If you have trouble lamenting of a loss, if you have trouble lamenting of a struggle, understand that lament as a form of gratitude. Think of Nicholas Volterstorff, who tragically lost his son. He will lament the rest of his life, not as an ingrate. He will lament the rest of his life as a love song to his son, which was lost. Learn lament. Without lament, I think we're forced into despair or pretend happiness, and both are not God's best for his people. So cry out. But look how crying out in verses 1 and 2 give way to conversation in verses 3 and 4. Divine conversation. Prayer. What can we learn about prayer from these two verses? I think two things. First, it should be specific. Our conversation with God should be specific. David is not generic in his prayers. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Verse 5, light of my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. My mother-in-law says you can gauge intimacy with God by the specificity of our prayer life. Generic prayers are issued to a generic God. Specific prayers are issued to a covenant, intimate Savior. Notice how everything that is spoken through tears in verses 1 and 2, everything are addressed then in verses 3 and 4. So David cries out about God's hidden face in verse 1. How long will you hide your face from me, he says. And then he prays in verse 3 that God would look at him. That's what consider is. He's saying, look at me. Consider. Look at me. Literally, the word is look. Look at me. David cries out about the dark sorrow in his soul in verse 1, remember? Well, in verse 3, he prays for light. David cries out about his enemies in verse 2, remember? Well, then he takes it up in prayer in verse 4. He's being very specific. The things that he's crying about, he's now conversing about with God in prayer. But he's also bold. David speaks in the imperative. He says, consider and answer me in verse 3. He's saying, look at me. And he's doing it in the form of an address. Yahweh, my God, consider and answer me, O Lord. Yahweh, God's covenant name, God's personal name, God's name that he gave his people. Not generic God, but Yahweh, God's name. And he says, Yahweh, my God. 
And so he's specific and he's bold and intimate. I've heard other pastors share this and now I understand it. It would break my heart if my boys called me Reverend Hack. I get that. I want them to call me Dad. Tim Keller says, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. My kids do this all the time. He goes on, We have that kind of access with the God of the universe. We can be bold and we can be specific as we pray to Him. And so I want us to resolve to pray about our struggles. That's it. Uh, The beauty of lament, verses 1 and 2, is that it often leads to healthy prayer. Think about it. We can talk with more freedom and boldness about our struggles. Our language will be less forced and parochial and more natural. We're able to listen more to God. And to just talk at Him. We trust God in new, fresh ways because we've cried out to Him as a broken reed. And then we have experienced in the depth of us that He does not break the broken reed. But He draws near in tenderness to the broken reed. And so let's pray about the things we're lamenting. Let's talk to God about them. Prayer is, after all, how you wait. And this is Advent. We're learning to wait. We're waiting for Him to make all things new. And so until then, we talk to Him in prayer. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the service, we're handing these out, these prayer calendars. This is just one way that we can lean into what it means to converse with God during Advent. To take broken things in this community, in our own lives, in the globe, and take them before God in conversation. So make use of that if you want. We cry out, we converse, and then finally we're given confidence in verses 5 and 6. David can talk in the past tense in verse 6. He says, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt, past tense, bountifully with me. David can talk with utmost confidence as if this bountiful dealing has already happened. Even in the midst of his lament in verses 1 and 2, he can say... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's a confidence in verses 5 and in 6 that comes on the tail end of crying out in conversation with God. He is certain. And I am certain. That God will restore joy in your soul. And song in your heart. What gives him such certainty? Well, there's two things he lists. God and his hesed, which is the word for steadfast love. And God's Yeshua, which is the word translated as salvation. There's two things that give David confidence and that should also give us confidence. Hesed and Yeshua. Say with me. Hesed and Yeshua. Get those words on your tongue because they're good. Kidner says David turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, 
in verse 5, but to its object and outcome, which she has every intention of enjoying. So this is what happens when you cry out to God and converse to God in prayer. You focus less about your faith and more about the object of your faith. You focus less about your faithfulness and more about the faithfulness of God. You focus less about your love and more about God's love for you. When you cry out to Him, when you talk to Him about your struggles, something changes inside of you so that your eyes are no longer sort of dwelling on your navel, but you're dwelling on His hesed, His steadfast love, His promises, and His salvation, His Yeshua. David looks forward to the day when he will rejoice in God's salvation. He looks forward. And he, for, for David, God's has said, his, in verse 5, his steadfast love is not theoretical, but it's demonstrated with actions of salvation. I will trust in your steadfast love, and my heart will rejoice in your salvation. Again, David looks forward to that day, but we as God's people on this side of the incarnation look back to God's act of salvation. We can look to the day in history when the angel told Joseph to name Mary's son Jesus. Because he will save us from our sins. Jesus, after all, being the name form of salvation. Yeshua. Joshua, Jesus, Jesus is our Yeshua. We too, with David, look not to our faith or the strength of our faith, but to the object of our faith, who is Jesus. We look to him as he came to us in the incarnation. We look to him as he promises to return. And so if you want certainty like this in verses 5 and 6, the only answer I have is to look to God's Yeshua. God's Yeshua, which is God's yes to his promise, which is God's yes to his covenant faithfulness. God made promises. Here he is following through. As one person put it, you must see Jesus in verses 1 through 4 to have the confidence of verses 5 and 6. See Jesus praying verses 1 through 4. For one, this was his prayer book after all. See him praying. But more than that, see him fulfilling verses 1 through 4. Look at each in turn. Verse 1, we see This cry, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? God the Father turned his face from God the Son on the cross. Yeshua, Jesus the Son, experienced verse 1 to a depth that we will never experience. So that we would never experience it. In verse 2, how long must I take counsel? My soul have sorrow in my heart for all the days. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Jesus sweat blood and sorrow and anguish, a prelude of the blood that he would shed for you on the cross. Jesus knew verse 2 better than all of us combined. So that verse 2 would not triumph over us. Jesus, in fact, allowed his enemies to overtake him on the cross and with joy. 
out of love for you so that you would never experience hell. Verse 4, Jesus joyfully endured the cross, his enemies triumphing over him, so death would never have any kind of claim on us. Jesus, man of sorrows, understood verse 3 as well. If you want to sing to the Lord like David in verse 6, you must first see Jesus singing over you in love. So may we cry out to God when we are stuck, verses 1 and 2. May we lament. May we stop spinning our wheels in the mud when we feel stuck. And said, cry out. And then may we converse with God with boldness and specificity. And then may we taste the confidence in part that we will taste in full when Jesus returns that can only come from God's own Yeshua. God's salvation. Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you make this Advent prayer our prayer as we wait for your return? And we're grateful that until that day you sent your spirit so that the singing and the rejoicing can be ours, even in our lament. We look forward to the day when you will wipe away every tear so that Adonai will be no more. And it's in your son's Jesus' name. Amen.